So as Mark said, we've been, we've been walking through Luke this summer, which wasn't really our plan, but we're not really that great at planning. At least I'm not. Mark actually is. I'm not. But we do have a plan. So as Mark said, we're going to be working through our core values, which does anybody know our core values? Anybody remember them? Relationship, justice, and beauty. That's, that's our three core values. And we like to keep it simple. Um, that's probably for me again. Um, but then after that, we hope to go into a series on Job, which is a little daunting for us, at least for me. Uh, it's, a, it's a big thing. It's a, it, there's a lot involved in that. So um, we're hoping to get there. And, you know, hope not everything that we hope for happens, but we're hoping to work our way through Job in the fall. So uh, I'm kind of looking forward to that and hope you guys are too. But we're, we're working through Luke right now, and Jesus has just been teaching about a kingdom where social classes are irrelevant. I, I think we often read the Bible from our own perspective and try to prop up our notions. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this today, about like we have this idea of the thing, but it's actually not the thing. Um, and Jesus all along is using imagery that tears down these structures that we continue to build back up. And so he's talking about a kingdom where the people invited to the party are not those with uh, any sort of influence, any sort of title or power. They were the people that probably wouldn't have even received an invitation letter. And yet Jesus says this is a kingdom where they're the main guests, they're the guests of honor. Right? And so I think that people are probably following Jesus because they're, they live in that world, right? Many of them. They live in this world where they have no power, they're oppressed, um, they really don't have any influence, and Jesus is saying, hey, there's a kingdom that you belong, and we all need to belong, right? So many, the crowd was probably very poor, some of them. Many were oppressed. All of them would have been oppressed at some level because they were oppressed by the Romans who had conquered them, right? But not only were they oppressed by their, uh, the, this, this conquering group of people from outside, their own religious leaders were oppressing them. And unfortunately, things haven't changed a lot on the religious leaders. I'm sure you guys have been watching the news. And spiritual abuse, sexual abuse is a regular phenomenon in the church. I should, we should repeat that thing, Lord have mercy, right? And I, I, I've been wondering and thinking and looking to God, and I think we need to stop this idea of positional authority. Get rid of it. And I'll explain it, positional authority in a second, but we need to allow relational authority to guide us a little bit more, right? So positional leadership or positional authority. This is the kind of leader has a specific position, a formal titer, title, pastor, um, and derives their influence and authority from the position. Whereas relational leaders are those who act without the formality of a title. Their influence and authority comes from trust, respect, and love established in the relationships around them. By the way, in my mind, Jesus fully rejects positional authority, right? He doesn't want to be called even the Messiah. He says, don't tell anybody. 
And then he teaches his disciples not to accept the title of rabbi or teacher. Jesus is a relational authority or relational leader. And Jesus has been speaking out against the systems that oppress people. And, that, and we're going to see that continues on into this, this passage today. Let me read from Luke 14. It's our passage, Luke 14, 25 to 33. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would want to begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first setting, sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while his enemy is still far away. So you cannot be my disciple without giving up everything you own. A little bit hard, eh? You might be wondering this morning, how does this, how does this passage even fit into this kingdom thought process? In fact, in some ways, it feels like more earth, kingdom of earth than the kingdom of God, right? Lots of people hate their family. <laughs> Jesus says, you got to hate your family. Lots of people begin things they don't finish. You can hate your family is very far from what is taught in Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. Right? Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. For this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you have, will have a long life on this earth. My parents used to use that on me. <laughs> Thank, yeah, I, I don't think I've used it on my kids, but maybe I will start. It's the first commandment with a promise. Right? But also, don't begin something until you count the cost sounds very different from what's, what Jesus says in Matthew 10.10. 10. Don't take any money in your money belts. No gold, no silver, not even copper coins. Don't carry a traveler's bag with a, with a change of clothes and sandals or even a walking stick. Doesn't sound like you've counted the cost at all. And then this whole business of an army needing to sit with counselors to figure out if they can defeat a bigger army is very different than Gideon leading 300 men against 120,000. What Jesus is saying is actually shocking. He asks his disciples to give up two very important things to them. And it's, it's probably still important to us. He asks them to give up family and land. And you might be thinking, okay, I, I see how you get to family, but where did you get the idea of land? And here's, here's what I'm gonna, where I'll show you that. So he says at the end of Luke 14, 33, the, the last verse, it says, so you cannot be, be my disciples without giving up everything you own. And the Greek word is possession. So own what you own is possession. If you go to the original promise that God gave to Abraham, you have the, 
you have in uh, Genesis 17:8. He says, I will give the entire land of Canaan, where you now live as a foreigner, to you and your descendants. It will be their possession, and I will be their God. So family and land. Jesus asks these people who their ad- identities are based on tribe, which is family, and land. And what we could recognize is that family and land are both things that help us to belong. Where I come from seems to be kind of essential to us and how we figure out where we're going, right? We want to find a place. It's, we say that to people all the time when we encounter them. Where are you from? It helps us to locate a person, right? Their culture, their food, their clothing, accent, their use of language, all is part of that. Where do you come from? And of course, family helps to locate us in a non-geographical way, right? These are my parents. That's where I came from. I belong to them, they belong to me. This is my brother. I belong to him, he belongs to me. This is my children, they belong to me, I belong to them, that's my uncle. And that's why family is important, although I would say that as followers of Jesus, we are called to have family that is not bound by DNA. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about and getting at here. Right, throughout Scripture, there's a call to care for the orphan and the widow and to welcome the foreigner. What do all those things have? Are missing? Foreigner, they're not in their land. Orphans and widows don't have family. So we're called to participate in family and to participate in land with people that are not like us, that are different than us, which if we really think about it is every single person. Brent is not me. We both have a set of eyes and Brent's a lot better looking. But we're not the same. We have lots of similar things, but none of us are the same. And so if we're called to this idea of like giving land and family to people that don't have it, what is Jesus asking of us then? Or what is, that, what is he asking this crowd and possibly of us? And I, I wondered at this, because these became identity pieces, I wonder if those two things, family and land, instead of creating space for others to be welcomed, for others who were different, they became things that actually caused them to exclude people. And I think we continue to do that. It tends to be true, right? That for us, right? And it seems that it's been true all throughout history. Wars have always been fought between tribes, family, and over land. God save us from ourselves. So Jesus, in another point, Jesus says, love your enemies. So when he says here to hate family, we have to realize it's only, it must be a comparison, right? Which it actually says in the NLT, it doesn't say that in the original, but in the NLT it calls it a comparison. But because these are identity pieces, the identity must be given up. So the identity of family and land needs to be given up, but not the relationship. But I can't imagine what his listeners are thinking, right? Is Jesus saying that God's promise to Abraham was a lie? I wonder 
if this truth, like many others, is less about the thing they're talking about and more about how we perceive the thing, right? And I know that's confusing, but we're looking at these two objects that Jesus has mentioned, family and possession. Possession always being land. And these are the promises of God that God gave to Abraham. That your descendants will be like the sand of the shore and that you will own this or uh, live in this land. And because we're people that have a smaller view of the cosmos and of the universe, the Israelites and us take God's promise to mean something that we desire or something that we have experienced, that we know, right? The problem for us is that we desire, what we desire is often far from what God desires. And what we've experienced is only a shadow of what God has for us. So we miss out on the real promise, the heart behind that promise. We see this all the time, right? Jesus was a perfect example. The Israelites were working for this military Messiah who would come and overthrow with blood, sword and blood. And yet, he shows up all pacifist-like, lays down his life, loves his enemies, and then dies. In Galatians 3.29, it says, For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Hmm. So Paul seems to think that this promise to Abraham is still, is still relevant. I think in some ways it's still relevant to us. The truth of, of this promise to Abraham is that it continues to be true. It's just not about a bloodline or a specific parcel of land in the Middle East. Right? The fullness of the promise to Abraham is found in Jesus. Jesus gives us this, this beautiful imagery of the church being his bride, which is the start of family. And then he calls us his children. Paul continues that line, and, and we hear people in the New Testament calling each other brothers and sisters. Right? The church is part of the family promise. And, and I don't mean the church like, it's such a confusing language, isn't it? Because we call the church, you know, we're going to this building. We're not talking about this building. We're not even talking about Royal City Mission. We're talking about this other thing that's hard to describe and probably not when, not happening when people are hurting others, but mixed up in all that, the church is part of the family that God promised. And the land isn't the territory on earth that we set our feet on and walk on and then try to conquer, but the kingdom of God. It's probably much better land. I've often been challenged about the idea of the gospel. You hear this word thrown around a lot. I was asked about the gospel in, in, a, in a panel one time, and it's funny how many different um, ideas there are. And, and usually leaders throw the gospel around, like that word, around a lot. It really just means the good news of Jesus Christ. But we all have kind of like a, a slant on that. But the gospel means, like I said, the good news. But the gospel that I hear often isn't good news for the outsiders. It's not good news for someone who doesn't have land or doesn't have family. 
It's awfully, often only good news for those who are in power and privilege. And this promise of family and land seems to exclude all those people Jesus told us were the guests of the party. So Jesus tells them to give it up. Or better, to better reframe that, it's to say, he, to reframe this image, right? Instead of giving it up fully, reframe the image of family and the image of land to include the excluded, which often is ourselves. It's funny that Abraham himself was confused by this promise. He's given this promise. He's told his wife is going to have a baby. And what does he do? Goes and has a baby with another woman because he thinks he can bring about the promise himself. Find that really, what a terrible outcome because he causes, he uses the promise to actually exclude one of his own children. My hope is that we as a community will have our eyes open to these things. Uh, these things that become false identities. And we still have them. The church is full of them. That, that we won't try to fulfill God's beautiful promise with small things that are, smokest, that are focused on little things. Instead, that we'll give up the promises that we desire for the promises that have true meaning and that give true meaning, and that welcome others and include the excluded. You know, I found it funny as I was finishing up this morning that today we're talking about something that has been core to the followers of Jesus, or the, the Israelites actually, asking them to give up their identity, their core values, and next week we begin a conversation on core values. What is it that we need to give up that identifies us as a community? And we can ask that personally. Um, I hope we always ask those things personally. What do I need to give up personally? But I think the call for us is to be people, not persons, right? If we're promised family, and it is partly this group here, and we're promised land that is pretty much everywhere, then what else do we need to give up to experience those things? I'm going to take a couple minutes to let you respond. You don't have to tell me what you think you need to give up unless you really want to. But maybe insight into, as a community, who we are as people. What, what is God saying to us? So the question could be, you can either respond to what I've said, or the, or the question could be, what is God saying to us as a community that we need to give up as our identity? It could be individual, but it could be community too. Uh, differences in opinion. Sweet, short and sweet, differences of opinion. And I think what you mean by that is the fighting over differences of opinion, right? I have to be right kind of goes in the face of, uh, do not think of anybody as, well, no, I've, I've messed up the scripture. It's in my mind, but it's not on my lips, sorry. But uh, um, yes. I think the Lord was saying to Abraham, your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. We're going to show you how to live and always seeming to want to re-embrace the other nations to set a good example. 
And when it didn't work out, God said, I will have to leave you, Jerusalem. Um, I think in this day that we live in, and from ver the verses that you read in Luke, he says, be tough-minded. Think about whether you can finish the house or whether you can win that battle. And be tender-hearted. And be open to the possibility that other people will come onto your land. Um, other people may want to live here, and if you listen to me, it would be a good place to live. And I think finally he's saying to us, stop excluding or pushing away um, different races of people, different groups of people, and that can make us uncomfortable. Like when you have a stranger sit at your table and you don't know them that well, but you've said, come in and have some food, but maybe they swear every fourth word. <clears throat> you know, you're gonna have to learn to deal with that. Um, you're gonna have to find ways to talk to one another that are not um, what you're used to. And I guess really we don't like to change. So we tend to be, um, we like to go along and that's okay sometimes, but usually it'll lead us to a bad place and we have to sometimes stand up and say, I can't go along with that. Anyhow, you better stop me or I'll keep going. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. I, I have wondered for us as a community, one of our, I think our identity in the community has been uh, a church that does welcome the outsiders. Maybe we need to give that up. Why is that our identity? Wouldn't it be better for our identity to be people who seek after God? See, the outpouring of that would be that we welcome the outsiders and people who are not welcome other places, but it should never become the thing that is our identifier. I'm convicted of that. Things that are, things are shadows, uh, they're good things, shadows are good, but the shadow of the thing cannot become the thing that we worship. Any other responses before we close? Yeah. For me, uh, the thing to most give up is just judgment of others. I'm just leaving that to God. We're guilty of, of judging outside of us. Let's pray. And uh, I hope that you'll have further conversation on this uh, or challenge me on this. That's fine. Um, let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that you are with us not just when we're gathered here, but wherever we go. I pray that you'd, you'd remind us of that, that in the midst of being in places that we don't recognize you, we would begin to see you. In faces that we don't always recognize you, we'd begin to see you. And Lord, help us to turn that inward and to find you inside of us too, present. I pray that you would help us to be a community that is identified by following you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.